the man, the myth, the legend. Right? Sound familiar? Most people credit, actually, P.T. Barnum of recent The Greatest Showman fame, right, um, as actually kind of coining that introduction. It's thought that uh, an MC sort of offstage would introduce Barnum at the beginning of his greatest show on earth, circus spectacles, that way. Now please put your hands together for me, the man, the myth, the legend, P.T. Barnum, right? But it's become sort of a, a colloquialism, a, a sort of a heralding of greatness in our, uh, in our culture, hasn't it, right? You know, the man, the myth, the legend, Nathan Johnson, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together. Where is he? I wanted to embarrass him. He's not even in the room, for crying out loud. Anyway, I tried, exactly, exactly. Um, but this morning, as we come into this second week of Advent, I want to, it's too tempting. Anyway, I want to consider introducing St. John the Baptizer in this same way. St. John, the man, the myth, the legend. But I want to unpack each of those as we, we talk about St. John the man, who he was, what he came to do, as well as then the myth that he actually came to debunk. So it's not a myth about John per se, but a myth that he came to debunk, as well as the legend that has frankly unhelpfully cropped up in the life and, and uh, faith of the church and her practice in the wake of his ministry. So, St. John, the man, the myth, the legend. First, the man. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3, beginning in, chapter, in verse 1, rather. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. And he goes on and describes John. Now, John wore a, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, truly, John was the proto-ascetic, wasn't he? What a lifestyle, living in the wilderness, eating only locusts and wild honey before vegetarianism was even cool. Even his garments indicate a rejection of the social and economic standards of his day. Many scholars believe John may have been previously connected with the Jewish sect known as the Essenes, who lived in Qumran near the Dead Sea. Like John, this ascetic community was drawn from the priestly tribe. Like John, they were devoted to fasting, prayer, and even celibacy, and their work was the copying of manuscripts of the Old Testament scriptures. The Essenes, like John, were also highly critical of the religious leadership of both the synagogue and the temple in their day. And finally, like St. John, the Essenes were particularly devoted to ritual purity and ritual washings, which was not actually all that unique within first century Judaism, but it was a, a particular emphasis of the community of Qumran. But while there are striking similarities, it's also clear that as he emerged into the public eye, St. John and his ministry make some important breaks with this tradition of the Essenes. Of course, we know for certain already from the Gospel account that the Spirit of God was already upon and at work with and in and through St. John the Baptist. You'll recall that inspired by the Spirit, he even leapt in utero 
when Jesus, also carried in his mother's womb, drew near. And so while John will essentially hand off his ministry to Jesus when he appears, and he'll boldly declare, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and even send his disciples to start following Jesus, the Essenes ultimately would actually reject Jesus and continue in their own uh, tradition and pattern. So a very essential break with that tradition. Also unique to John was this baptism for repentance that he proclaimed. Contrary to popular belief, St. John did not invent baptism. As I said, ritual washings were part and parcel of the Jewish faith of his time. However, what John did that was altogether new was take one particular form of ritual washing and apply it in a wholly new way. What do I mean? Prior to John, baptism was known within Judaism, but it was an act reserved wholly to converts. If you or I, you know, non-native-born, non-Jews, wanted to become proselytes, to declare our faith in the one true God and become his follower and take up the, uh, the um, Hebrew worship and, and Hebrew study of, of his word and etc., we would go through a series of rituals to be included, one of which was called baptism, immersion in a ritual washing, a ritual bath. So when John goes out into the desert and draws pious Jews to himself and teaches them that they must be baptized, he presents a problem. And that leads us to consider our second point, the myth. The myth that he came to debunk. Because much of John's ministry was a prophetic call to disabusing his countrymen, his fellow Jews, of the tightly held religious misperceptions, misconceptions that they had. Matthew tells us in verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now there is a seeker-friendly sermon for you, right? <laughs> I'm glad I did not greet you all this morning, you brood of vipers. <laughs> but do you see how this, this background, knowing that baptism was already a thing, but a thing for converts, how that helps us understand this interaction between St. John and the Sadducean and Pharisaic leaders of his day. Clearly, the symbol was not lost on them. Certainly, they would be presuming to say, why on earth would I go and be baptized? I am already a son of Abraham, right? We are native-born children. Yet John sees these religious leaders, the Pharisees, who were fastidious about keeping the finer points of the law of Moses, but whom Jesus tells us were neglecting the weightier bits, like love your neighbor, right? And the Sadducees, who were basically sellouts to the Roman Empire, in order to preserve the cultic practices of the temple. 
long as we just keep the, cult, uh, the, the, the temple going, it doesn't matter what other concessions we make. John, even before Jesus comes on the scene, attacks these religious misperceptions head on. Don't say we are children of Abraham. Don't say as long as we keep the regulations or as long as we keep the temple going, it's enough to merit God's favor. Rather, bear the fruit that the law of God and the worship of God was intended to bear. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, Jesus will say to these same leaders. You can't cling to your rightness. You have to go back to the beginning. Like new converts, you have to enter anew into the kingdom of God. You will have to receive the Lord's anointed Messiah and his love for you. Only then will you be free to respond with the love for God and for the world that he requires. Yet as we approach this text, and as we approach this message, and this act of repentance, we need to do so from our place in the plan and the timeline of God and his salvation. Because failing to appreciate our position in the story of faith in relationship to John's position in that story has given rise to what I might call the, the legend that has arisen from John's call and John's baptism. What do I mean by that? Well, first remember that John's message, repent for the kingdom of God is near, that was a message to Jews, very specifically, in preparation for the coming of their Messiah, very specifically. So we have to be very careful before we uh, take up this message intended uh, for these Jewish hearers and, and apply it to ourselves in the 21st century North American church. And second, along with the message, we have to quickly acknowledge that John's baptism is not the same thing as Christian baptism. John's baptism is not the same thing as Christian baptism. Because a lot of confusion has arisen in the church, especially in the centuries since the time of the Protestant Reformation. Confusion that comes from taking the message and the sign of John as a message and a sign for ourselves. But John himself says, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, in the culture of contemporary evangelicalism that has arisen and that many of us come out of, but that has arisen from and been deeply impacted by certain subgroups of the Protestant Reformation. The message of repent for the kingdom is near has come to sort of typify the, the primary message and become somewhat synonymous with what those groups mean by preaching the gospel, right? Calling people to repentance for the kingdom is near. At the same time, so-called believers-only baptism 
has become normative in many churches across these traditions. This Baptist tradition very deliberately points to St. John the Baptist, not just because of his name, although that was handy, as the progenitor of their tradition and line. Especially as they experienced persecutions, they espoused a, a, a trail of blood, they called it, as their sort of answer to what the broader church maintains as an apostolic succession. In other words, in the church, we point to the fact that our bishops, the bishop that laid hands on me, he himself was set apart by the laying hand on, of hands of a predecessor who himself had hands laid on him by a predecessor and so forth, all the way back to the apostles themselves. These nonconformists, of course, operated outside of this structure. And so to lend credence to their movement, they sought to trace what they called a, a trail of blood through all those who in previous generations were martyred and or bled for their nonconformity trying to trace the line all the way back to St. John the Forerunner, because, of course, we know later in the gospel he will literally lose his head for his stand against Herod and the powers that be. Likewise, these nonconformists look to St. John for their understanding of the sacrament of baptism. An act for converts, those who have come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah to enter into the kingdom of God. There's just one problem with that line of thinking. John himself, because he says, my baptism is not his baptism. His is different. This is a uniquely Jewish preparation for the coming of God's Messiah, Jesus, and his kingdom. The Christ will bring a different kind of baptism, not merely immersion in water for ritual cleansing, but a drenching in the Holy Spirit and purifying fire. In other words, what John's baptism prefigures, Jesus' baptism fulfills. John was preparing the way by leading people to respond, to lead them to declare their need to be saved by their Messiah. The Christ would come and he would save them and then leave them a sacrament whereby they might receive the perfection of purification, which is what this symbol of fire means. They can receive the full effect of his purifying work on the cross, purging, burning away the sin, the stain, the taint of their original sin. And they receive the Holy Spirit of God, which was promised from the time of the prophets. In other words, a sign of repentance does not come close to touching the fullness of what baptism entails. Certainly it's a part of it. Don't hear that. Certainly it is a part of it. On the day of Pentecost, when the crowd gathers around the apostles and asks, brothers, what must we do to be saved? Peter declares to them very clearly, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So clearly Christian baptism still has a connection to repentance, turning from a former way of life, and for any who have not yet received the sacrament of new birth, for any who have not come to Christ to receive the new life of faith, healing and wholeness that he offers, that is still a very relevant message. Turn to him. Come to him. But what St. John the baptizer himself declares to us 
is that the baptism of the Christ is that, but also so much more. There's also so much more. John's baptism was a call to a response. A call to a response, a way effectively for Jews, those who had already known God, most of them from their birth, and their life in the nation of Israel, to make a response to move toward God in a new way. But in the same breath, what John is declaring is that baptism in the name of Jesus is not about us doing something to respond to God. It is about declaring and receiving what God has done for us. It's not about our response. It's about God's work. In Christ's baptism, which the church continues to practice, it is about receiving the finished work of Christ poured out over the recipient. Therefore, it's not primarily about the recipient doing anything. It's about simply proclaiming and receiving that which has already been done. The outpouring of the work of God in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now again, it's not as though Christian baptism turns its back on the need for repentance. From ancient times, the liturgy for baptism begins with the recipient or those charged with the upbringing of the recipient making an act of public repentance begins, do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? And then a couple of other renunciation questions. And then it goes on, do you turn toward Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? So there is the need and the element of repentance present. But as the Anglican reformer so eloquently put it, quote, baptism is not only a sign of profession and a mark of difference, but it's also a sign of regeneration and new birth, whereby as by an instrument, they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. The promise of forgiveness of sins and our adoption to be sons of God by the Holy Ghost are visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed and grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. It's an instrument, an implement, a tool that God uses. through which Jesus imparts the cleansing, purifying, purging work of his Holy Spirit, the fire. The same Spirit who empowers the recipient to live the life and the commitments of faith that are made. Those who look to the message and means of St. John's baptism as their model often hold baptism as, as the end, the end result of conversion to Christ. You've converted, great, go and be baptized. But the church has historically viewed baptism as the beginning of one's conversion. The first step. The act whereby one is granted the tools to, quote, work out their salvation in fear and trembling, as St. Paul will say. So what is our response? from this understanding of John's message and baptism as uniquely Jewish calls. Where does that leave us? How can we respond and, and apply the word of God before us this morning? Well, first, there is the call that John issues that is for any who have never turned toward Christ. Repent, which is just a fancy Bible word for turn. Turn to him. 
The invitation is to turn toward Jesus. Not because his kingdom is near though, but because his kingdom has come. It has begun in Jesus and is experienced in his church. And he wants very much for you to experience it with us. So turn to him. For any have not responded in that way to Jesus before, hear the invitation of John this morning. Turn toward him. But for the rest of us who have turned toward Christ and received grace through the sacrament of new birth, the message of this text is not repent for the kingdom is at hand. Rather, it is rejoice in what you have received. Rejoice in what you have received. The one who came after John, Jesus Christ, has baptized you with his Holy Spirit and his purifying fire. Rejoice in what you have been given in Christ. And especially in this holy season of Advent preparation, the invitation is to work out that salvation. Work out that great gift given Work it out even more deeply. Hunger for more of it. Seek the Lord and say, I do not wish to be satisfied with anything less, but I want to hunger for more. Hunger for an increase in your purifying work. Hunger for an increase in the the gifts that you want to pour out in me and in your church. Don't let me be satisfied with anything less. It is to pray, Lord, you have done your purifying work in me. Show me then where the places where I've actually gone back and returned to my former ways and where I need to be purified yet again because I've taken up dirty things. The purifying work of Christ is received in an instant, but it is applied over a lifetime. And so we ask, where are the places in my heart where that purifying gift needs to be applied and experienced more deeply? It's also to pray, Lord, you have given me the gifts of your spirit. But what are the gifts that I have left unwrapped in the box? What are the gifts that I have neglected or left unused? Where do I still need to work at cultivating an expectation of your supernatural work in my life? These are the prayerful questions that we as believers need to be asking. Because this is John's message to us. We have been baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. How then are we to work out those gifts in our lives in this holy season as we we prepare not for Christ's coming, but for his return and the fullness of life in him? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, you alone can answer those questions for each of us. You alone have the power to bring not condemnation, but clarification and conviction. You alone can put your finger on the places in our hearts where your perfectly restored and purchased purifying work needs to be applied. You alone, Lord, know the gifts that you wish to pour out on each and every member of your church. You alone, Lord, can grow 
this insatiable hunger in us. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, which you promised you would fill. And so, Lord, we turn to you and look to you again in this Advent season, in our journey walking with you in our baptized life. It's to you that we pray, our Lord, our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Again, didn't I? Been just you know, trying it on for size to see if it still fits. And guess what it does? Lord, give us the grace of confession. That we might experience the redemption, the release of absolution. pray for any of us who recognize that we're walking along that path and thinking, yeah, 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 we took care of that in the past. No, I haven't been trying to take up those shackles again. Boy, I sure don't have any joy in my faithful endurance. Kind of running short on patience right now. Lord, would you pour out the gift of your spirit, your promise that the Life of your kingdom is not a life of drudgery, but a life of true freedom. Restore to that soul, Lord, the joy of your salvation. Renew, Lord, right spirits within each of us this morning, we pray.